0: Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission.
1: Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic
2: Racing News wherever they get their podcasts.
0: Welcome to the Historic Racing News radio show.
3: Hello. On the show this week we've an absolute plethora of good stuff to talk about. My name is Paul Tarsi, and I'm joined as usual by Jim Roller, Paul Jerd, and Joe Bradley. We're gonna play our game of opinionated nonsense called Corridors of Power, and this month Tim will be nominating entries for the greatest single seat arrival of all time. We're going to be talking about what poor Jurd has found in his latest visit to the dusty local second-hand bookshop and I'm expecting a spirited debate about the merits of displaying race cars at car shows rather than at racetracks. Hello chaps, how are we? All
1: well, good. All good, good in the north of England.
3: <laughs> it's always
1: good in the north of England.
0: <laughs> yeah it is, Shh, don't tell anyone. Beautiful <laughs> fall day here in uh, Denver, North Carolina.
2: And and how are things in Hedge End, Paul? Fine and dandy, if I may say
3: so. Jim Roller, talking of great single-seater rivalries, I know that in our, in our game later on in the show, nobody's nominated either Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen. But I have to say that the Russian Grand Prix uh, a couple of weeks ago was up there as one of the the best in recent years, but that rivalry is there, isn't it?
0: Oh, it certainly is. And the Russian Grand Prix proved that we should be inverting the field. Um, <laughs> Yet yeah, again, if you take if you take those two knuckleheads out of the equation, <laughs> or or put a mid pack or worse, it it's a fantastic event. Um, as far as the rivalry goes, yeah, you know, right now it's tit for tat. Um, I think that both of them have been have been knuckleheads. I think part of what we're seeing in the last couple of races comes down to what we'll be talking about a little bit later in our corridors of power with the way some of the drivers who preceded these two uh, have um, comported themselves on the racetrack. And I think the other thing too is you saw some racing in Russia where guys left each other some room. Uh, I just don't understand when it became okay uh, to just, when the guy is right there next to you, drive out to the edge of the racetrack and force him off the racetrack. I just I just don't understand when that became okay. But apparently it is because they've, they've both done it and um, with varying degrees of success.
3: Joe Bradley... The, enough has already been said about the uh, the history of hamilton and verstappen you know and all the the nasty things that they've done with their various accidents but mm. do you think this is going to go down in history as a great rivalry i
1: i think i think it will yeah i mean it's if you look down through the years and that's what we're here to do isn't it historically yeah. news um Good it's point. Also on the tin. Um, you know, I remember Ayrton Senna and how shaken up he was when along came Michael Schumacher. Um, Schumacher was shaken up when along came Mika Hakkinen. And you look further, further back down in in through the uh, through the years of Formula One racing. I think this one is right up there. You've got, you know, statistically the greatest of all time, uh, Lewis Hamilton. And I want to emphasise statistically there. Thank you. Uh, which we'll not go into. Um, and then along comes Max Verstappen, undoubtedly uh, just, you know, overflowing with natural talent because he's been in a cart since he was five years old. Since and, he was an amoeba. Yes, absolutely. Well, absolutely, because he's, his mother was a pretty high-level cart racer in her time. His father was a Formula One driver. So genetically... He should be a superhuman driver, and he is, and he is, isn't he? he, yeah. he whatever, whatever your opinion of of any of these, you know, whether it be Hamilton or Max Verstappen, they are very, very gifted human beings that are driving racing cars. So, t- I think I think we should look at this as being in a very privileged position to be alive and actually see this on track. And I think this year. Isn't it strange in Formula One that it always seems to be the case of when we change the regulations, the outgoing, the end of the regulation year, always tends to be absolutely tremendous with different winners and stuff. And you think, <laughs> why are we changing things? This is brilliant with McLaren coming to the fore, and and uh, and and you know, I mean, that drive from Lando Norris uh, a couple of weeks ago in Russia, it, the the mental strength that he showed in those. Laps before, and, and you know what? It came down to a call from the pit wall.
0: And nah, it came down to a call from him.
1: No, no, hang on, Jim. No, no, it didn't.
0: No, it's stay just, out, stay so, out. He said, I'm so, gonna stay yeah, out. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'm staying out, which is what Hamilton said. And his yeah. team, his pit wall replied, If we've got information, there's more rain coming. Box, box. Yes, McLaren's they did. Information wasn't that McLaren, That's because was
0: McLaren- okay. McLaren just said okay, and they were the ones that should have, should have well, uh, overruled him. And yes, they let him get away with that, and it cost so, him.
1: Absolutely. So as a driver, I was sat on the sofa saying, I, I'm not going to come in. I'm not gonna, I wouldn't come in. And then the rain became heavier. So it was, the, the, you know, they lost as a team. It was a team effort in in that one. But we'll see. We'll see him come to the fore. I mean, oh, to yeah. show that sort of skill. Um, so you know what? We've got Hamilton and Verstappen. Are we about to see Hamilton drift away from Formula One? You know, he's got other interests beginning to occupy him. Are we I heard then he's gonna, gonna be see... a fashion
0: designer? Is that true? I think so. I think I think so.
1: He's got he's got other interests. Are we then gonna see? So we've seen Hamilton shaken up by Verstappen, it's gonna be a fantastic year, not over yet. Um, are we then gonna see the likes of Lando Norris and George Russell coming through? and maybe, you know, scratching at the heels of uh, Max Verstappen. Uh, well, I think we're, we're probably going to have a halcyon period in the next three years of Hamilton, Verstappen, and the two new boys coming through in the form. And, hey, guess what? They're
0: British. I've just realized that. Can I add one more thing? Um, yeah. I, I agree with everything Joe says, but I think for this to become a great rivalry, it needs to have that three-year period of, of or, or at least a couple year period of competition if Hamilton yeah. drifts away then okay it was a great season it was a great rivalry for maybe a year and a half um, but it's to be a full-blown great yeah. rivalry you need a couple of seasons you need yeah. you, yeah. you need block. the battle to to carry on and how great is it And how much more interesting is it to watch a Formula One race when it's more than just two teams that are competitive? I mean, God, Uh, that was – and and also it makes it tougher on those two teams because they just can't cover each other. They've got to cover somebody else as well.
1: And we saw that. But just to to confirm what you've said, Jim, an example of that three-year before it becomes a a classic rivalry was the Senna-Schumacher thing. Yeah. We didn't really see that come yeah. to and bear the fruit we, we, we would have seen if Senna hadn't lost his life at Imola that in 94. We would have had, you know, 94, 95, 96 and onwards of that rivalry developing into, um, you know, a, a historic rivalry. We didn't see that. We can only speak of what might have been. And I think you're, you're absolutely spot on. Hopefully Hamilton, Hamilton will stay around into the new regulation period. And you never know, you never know. I just hope it's not a reset back to Mercedes domination because they've got the regulations right. I hope that we're going to see a lot more of what we saw because, hey, did anybody else see how affected the Mercedes pit wall were by running fifth in Russia <laughs> in that early sta- In those early stages? They didn't know what to do because his tyres were being affected by the dirty air from the car or the four or five cars in front. And it was like this was a different, this was a different approach that we're going to have to take to this race. It but was I think one of the things
3: with, with that, Joe, is that that again has happened time and time again. That if you look at Jim Clark, Jim Clark was a brilliant driver when he was at the front. Mm. He wasn't mm-hmm. as good when he was in fifth place Mm. and that Colin Chapman built him a car that was better than anybody else's. And that, you know, we've seen, we've seen that time and time again, and you could argue, and we have argued on corridors of power in the past that, you know, there are some people who are out there who are great at the front, but the moment that they have to squabble for a place, they don't really know how to do it. And, no, we may be there. Anyway, we're we we're, we're spending too much time on the present. Let's get back <laughs> to the past. Yeah, because, which is where past. we which is where we live. <laughs> Paul, you uh, you had a good t- good time at the um, Porsche Festival at Brian's Hatch,
2: didn't you? That's right. Yeah, I was there there at the start of September. To be quite honest, it was, it was a busy old day with quite a lot going on, but it was uh, fantastic. We had some nice cars turn up as well as the actual racing that was going on with uh, Jochen Mass. As the uh, the guest of honour, and he did a few laps in a Rothmans livery nine five six. It was a <laughs> chassis zero zero seven for the uh, for those who worry about such things. The uh, well, let's say most of the car that Stefan Bedoff used to set the lap record at the Nurburgring, before he then uh, stood on its tail, rolled it into a ball during the actual race. <laughs> It's, so, so it's it's been rebuilt and it's lovely now isn't it well it was rebuilt to be honest with parts of other parts of chassis eight as well so it's mm, seven and a half maybe but uh <laughs> yeah it does look nice it's been put back into uh rothman's livery because of course when it was rebuilt it was sold to richard lloyd and ran in canon colors so it was uh, lovely to see that going around and we, we had a whole range of um every gt3 cu- every cup car shall we say that a uh, porsche had ever produced was out on track which was quite nice so uh, yeah a great day's racing and uh Fantastic to see, I think it was 4,000 Porsches actually arrive and park up. Wow. Do you know that the high spot would be for me of
3: that day would be watching Jochen trying to get into or out of a
2: 956 these
3: days. <laughs> he
2: didn't spend very long in it, should we say, and, and was politely edging around the comfort issue when interviewed afterwards. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> but that, yeah, I, mean, that, I think uh, that sounds a lot of fun. It, it and, was, to be quite honest, yeah. It was, it was every couple of years, and uh, I was mostly stuck up in the commentary box. I was desperate to say, sort of to actually have a, have a word with Jochen, and the only time I ever managed it, we passed on the stairs, at which point I just said, hi, Jochen, in a bright, cheerful voice, and he must, to this day, be wondering who the hell I am. <laughs> As we all are.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Harsh, but true. <laughs> no. Now, Paul, you also have um, a somewhat, uh, shall we say, privileged relationship with your local second-hand bookshop, don't you?
2: I do, actually. I'm rather fortunate in that anything motorsport that comes in gets put to one side for me, which uh, means I I go in there and I'm never quite sure what I'm actually going to be leaving with. But it's usually something very, very nice. And uh, one of my most treasured acquisitions from there is is a wonderful book by Chris Nixon, who's uh, probably best best known for the the Mon Ami mate book on uh, Peter Collins and Mike Hawthorne. But in this case, I'm I'm the proud possessor of Racing the Silver Arrows, mm. which is right. yeah a fantastic, you know, deeply researched and really an all-encompassing tome looking at what has to be really a unique period in motorsport when virtually you had state-sponsored racing teams, yeah, which, which were the yeah you know, the Mercedes and Union, and they were and also Union, they were at the forefront of motorsport in the 1930s and. Uh, virtually unbeatable well actually we'll, we'll, i think we'll revisit that slightly later in the podcast and i'll explain that a little more and you know they were literally seen by germany as a force for demonstrating that national superiority across europe and beyond and yeah you know, and they, were, they were
0: definitely a political tool of the of the hmm. nazi regime that is without a doubt
2: oh hugely so to be quite honest you know you, you had when the, there's in the book, it's when when the teams travel, particularly when they travel to to America for the Vanderbilt races. For some reason, they essentially had Nazi minders going with them to make sure there was no anti German behaviour. Yeah. <laughs> what what for, from the team or from 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 the team team? In fact, Ferry Porsche was part of the, part of the squad going across, and he actually got hauled off by um, one of these minders for having danced with a Hungarian girl from a Jewish family. Really? Yeah. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And similarly, you know, Hans Stuck you know, was one of the drivers, Hans Stuck Senior, shall I say, for those who remember the 1970s Formula One racer and uh, the Group C winner. But, uh, you know, he got public abuse and a lot of attention from the Gestapo because his wife had a Jewish grandfather. And yet she was the, you know, the third highest ranked tennis player in Germany at the time. And, mm. yet, you know, that was an issue that almost left to him going to Switzerland and uh, retiring from the sport.
0: I think Jürgen Barth's dad had some uh, similar, um, similar uh, things as did Nikki Seaman
3: Yeah, yeah,
0: um, yeah. the the, um, the the
3: one thing that I always remember about stories about the uh, the Silver Arrows back in the thirties was that not only were they a, a Nazi political tool, but they were a very very snobbish tool, you know. And you had von Brauschisch and and basically the aristocrats. And there is the story that all the drivers were sitting down um, at, in a cafe somewhere after a race, and that von Brautisch, who obviously came from a, a, a very aristocratic family, said, um, champagne for everybody. Oh, and a beer for Lang,
2: because Lang was not ah. an aristocrat. <laughs> that, that's that's gonna wound, isn't it? Yeah. He he does come up for a little bit of, of, of very lightly veiled um hostility, should we say, I think, in the book von Brautich. But mm. you know, the, the research that Nixon has gone to is hugely impressive. You know, the book looks at the triumphs, the tragedies. You know, of course Bert Rosemeyer was killed chasing speed records on a specially closed autobahn. And it goes into even some depth in the circuit of the days. So there's some circuit layouts of Monza, which I never even knew existed. In nineteen thirty-four, they actually raced up and down the pit straight going in both directions on the pit straight. Did they? Mm. Yeah. I didn't w- know that. Yeah. Then they'd loop off onto the banking, which had a, had a hairpin on it around back in, round the parabolica up the pit straight, 180 degrees and come straight back.
1: Oh, but wow.
2: uh, yeah, that, that circuit section is a highlight. And I must admit this, this personally. I just loved, loved the section on the Donington park races of 1937 and 38. And uh, you know, the circuit had been the work of Fred Craner, So the man, the cr- famous curves are named after. And he toiled mightily to get the European stars to come to his circuit, only to find the RAC would not let him call the event the British Grand Prix as they weren't involved. So it's snobbery on this side of the channel as well. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, this was a circuit very different. Redgate was still the first corner, but it was a left hander, not a right hander, because you had the circuit actually went all the way down to the Melbourne loop, actually outside, I think, that the circuit today. And of course, you had this British crowd who'd only ever read about these German cars. They'd not seen them. You know, they hadn't seen them on television. It wasn't even an option. And they were amazed at the power and speed of these cars. And, uh, you know, it was the two races were just dominated by the Germans. And, you know, the best British finish in those two years was a sixth of the ERA of Arthur Dobson. And can I say that's possibly the only name that. Time. The name of Arthur Dobson will crop up in any of these podcasts that we ever do. <laughs> it's a very English name, isn't it? It, it is. It is. But the, the thing that got, really got me about this was, of course, that the bookmakers in 1937 turned out I and mean, you could gamble on motor racing at that time. And you know, there's a whole new story there with scandals in other races about book, uh, people rigging races. But the bookmakers hadn't realised how good the Germans were. And got the odds completely wrong to the extent that at the end of the race every single bookmark maker had legged it into the far distance because they couldn't <laughs> cover all the winnings. <laughs> Amazing,
3: yeah. That's that really is is a great story. I can remember actually that they they tried to introduce bookmakers at Grand Prix when Peter Revson won the British Grand Prix at Silverstone, which would have been seventy three help me uh yep yeah, 73 british grand 73. prix peter revson and that uh, there were bookmakers on site um to uh, to take your money for that and uh i think they did very nicely out of that so that was when, a good when i was
2: in touring cars in the late 90s so there was a spell there where we actually had bookmakers at the circuits really i don't remember that yeah that was a little convoluted with lots of people from teams changing shirts and rushing out should we say
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> there is the expression which is
3: you never see a bookie on a bike oh, which uh, which
1: means that they tend to be on the winning side yeah. um, they, they used to always be a bookmakers at the Grand Prix Paul they used to yeah, yeah distinctly remember bookmakers would have little stalls um, behind the main grandstands uh, opposite the Silverstone Pits which is now the National Circuit so between um, Woodcut and Cops, there'd be one down at Club, there'd be little Ladbrooks or other. I'd I'm sure it was Ladbrooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, ne- I never, I've, I've, something I've never ever uh, gambled with is, is motorsport. I, I just, I deal with football, it's the only thing, it's my only vice. I like to have a little, just to add a little bit of interest as to what's happening elsewhere in the football league. But motorsport, nah, it's just, nah, not even these days. I mean, you know, yeah. which Mercedes would you pick? Or oh, you know, who, who would have put money on the on the previous Grand Prix in Russia? You know, forget that. Well, I come... know
3: that uh, that Nick, our, our producer of this show, um, goes out at the beginning of every season and and puts a wedge on yeah. on something, and uh, yeah. and then almost regrets it by April. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, but uh yeah, I think it's it's good stuff, Paul. That that's just go back to your book a minute. That that
2: nineteen thirty eight Grand Prix was was um postponed wasn't it the, 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 they raced in 37 38 but didn't race in 39 no, because no. there was something going on internationally i believe
3: <laughs> yeah i mean in 1938 they they had it planned for the end of september and that all the cars came over all the germ both the german teams came over for a month beforehand i mean that shows how how organized they were to uh, to test and that in the middle of that, it was getting pretty lumpy, let's say, between uh, or across Europe. Um, The Germans then invaded Czechoslovakia, and that it didn't look particularly happy then. But then, of course, um, Neville Chamberlain came back, not Hugh Chamberlain, Neville Chamberlain, and um, that he came back with the bit of paper for peace in our time and that How'd that the, work out. Oh yeah, that <laughs> went pretty well. And that um the race was then recommissioned. It was meant to be on the thirtieth, I think, of uh, of September, and that they ran it on the twenty second of October. So it, it was the rustling in the background it was me just checking. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love it when you correct me, Paul.
2: <laughs> but no, no, you're right. It's twenty second of October. You're quite right on that, actually. Yeah. And and of course, this was, was back in the days for those who knew Donington, when Starkey's Bridge was still there. You know, the cars were actually shooting the spans of the bridge during the race.
3: Yeah, and there was a permanent yellow flag there, wasn't there? Because you were you weren't allowed to overtake going through the spans of the bridge. <laughs> I think it would have that- to have been insane to have tried. Do you you know the story story of, uh, I don't know if any of you have ever read um, the Tom Wheatcroft autobiography. If you haven't, find it. Paul, you need to talk to your second-hand book uh, man because
2: it's... It's not all about roses, is it? (laughs) No, not Tom Wheatcroft.
3: Um, And he tells the tale as, um, and you can only do it if you think of him telling it in his Derby accent and he says that they were having all sorts of trouble because they didn't know how to lay out the new circuit um to deal with starkey's bridge which the local authority wouldn't let them knock down and in his book he says and then bugger me if one night some local scallywags came along and blew it up <laughs> I
2: hate it when that happens <laughs> Cool. So, uh, yeah, that sounds like a good book, Paul. Well, recommended? D- definitely. I had a quick look, and I can't see that it's currently in print, but say, so if you do ever see a copy, snap it up and, uh, yeah, just learn about a unique era of motorsport.
0: The Historic Racing News Radio Show.
3: Now, chaps, I have a question for you, and it's about the whole genre of concours d'élegance. Mm. Um. I recently had the pleasure of attending two of our finest concours in the UK, which which ridiculously both happened on the same weekend. Um, Salon Privé was at Blenheim Palace, home of the Duke of Marlborough and birthplace of Winston Churchill. And the next day I went to Hampton Court Palace, which had been the home of Henry VIII. So some, some good history there. But my question comes from the fact that, in each case, there are lots of competition cars there, one way or another, all nicely polished and, and looking bright and shiny and concoursy. Um Jim, lots of people say that competition cars should be on a track, not on some well-manicured lawn somewhere. And you and I both went to Amelia Island and Pebble Beach a couple of years ago both of those two are even further up the evolutionary scale than Hampton Court or Salon Privé. What are your thoughts about it?
0: Well, there comes a point when the priceless nature of an automobile may inhibit an owner from wanting to risk his investment. Hmm. I think that that and I think it's also I think they're two different things. Mm. Um because you can do both. You can you can have the lawn setting but you can also race the car or uh drive the car in a in a parade or a uh, like the Mila Milia you know, one of yeah, one of those events that's, that's, event. that's more a touring rally than than uh, than a competition. Um, but for some of these cars, just being able to see them on on the lawn is 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 good. It's just a different way because who is ever going to get to unless you've got a paddock pass or you're one of us who's lucky enough to to be on the inside. Of the sport. If you're the, if you're the guy who's buying the ticket, you're not going to be able to buy a ticket to the Monterey historics necessarily and be able to go over and have the owner of the car open the door for you so that you can look inside or perhaps even sit inside the car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At, a, at an event like uh, Amelia Island, the owners will, you know, if all you have to do is ask them one question and you have a friend for life because (laughs) they will tell you chapter and verse about the car uh, and offer to let you sit in it. In most cases, uh, the folks at Pebble are a little bit more standoffish than that, but the majority of them would be the same way. So I see them as, as two different things. I can see... I can see the 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 for lack of a better term purist saying that they you know they belong on the racetrack, but I think that's very short sighted, and I think that's just not thinking in a in a broad enough way about the reach and enjoyment that people get from cars and racing good point,
3: Joe. I know that um when you came across to Amelia Island and we uh, we all had a great time there, uh, and that was when Jackie Eeks was the guest of honor. Um, do you think race cars belong on the golf course or not?
1: Um, in simple, in simple, the simple answer is what Jim said. Um, I completely concur with what Jim has said there. Um, personally, I much prefer to see historic race cars on the track. Um, but I also don't mind having a wanderer about the lawn and having a chance to see Jim Clark's Indy 500 winning Lotus um, up close, being able to lean in and have a look at the car. I mean, it, you know, p- part and parcel of going to any race meeting, whether it's an historic race meeting or a contemporary race meeting, is to have a wander about the paddock and have a look at the cars up close. You then get to see them on track. So for me, that's probably the best environment for them to be in. But then, you know, I, I also understand that some, some race cars, some historic race cars are just absolutely so valuable as to, I certainly wouldn't like the responsibility of taking it round the track or, you know, maybe the engine is, you know, so old and, uh, you know, we, we, we can't really risk the, 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 the value of, of the, of the piece. Um, so I support that. I think Jim was spot on. There's, there's, there's got to be room for both. And for me, I will always prefer to see race cars in anger, in action. Um, but that doesn't detract from a weekend at Amelia Island or across in California or anywhere for that matter. If you get a chance to, you know, if, the, if there's an opportunity to go to a Concours and, and see. A collection of cars, then you know I'm your man. I'll still be there in the in the in the same <laughs> vein. Absolutely, you know. Um, I think there's a, there's there's certainly space. They both complement each other, don't they? You know, the, I think, the, I if think they people, do. I the, think they the, do. The Concours yeah. complements the historic race meeting. The historic race meeting um, complements the the Concours that you may visit.
3: Paul George, you've you and I have had this conversation in the past. And I think you. You probably have different feelings
2: um yeah it, it's, it's a bit tricky i would rather wish I'd gone first because I think Jim did sum this up very very well to be honest <laughs> it, it's it's a tricky one, yeah, you know I have to admit that i've never actually set foot inside a concourse in my life and not something that I think I'd possibly want to do deliberately i I can appreciate that you know they work on all levels to different people, but certainly when when you 're there with a race car. You know, it would be nice to see that race car maybe in its more natural setting. There's not that many Porsche 962s, is it, that ever really have been on golf courses. But um, I can also see, and, and actually slightly adjusting my viewpoint from having recently done two sessions hosting at Goodwood, which was in a way very, very similar. We just had cars lined up. They weren't going anywhere. They weren't doing anything. But we had people walking along them. And you could see that how people were actually enjoying just being that up close and intimate with a car that maybe they'd only ever seen in a picture or anything. Although I did have one conversation with a gentleman who was getting far too much into the uh, the sensuous curves of a Porsche 917 for my comfort. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think that aspect of actually being able to get up close, personal, and you know, talk to people about the cars—if if that then leads someone further into understanding that car, wanting to see maybe in its more natural environment, then uh, yeah, you know, I could I could be cool with that. Yeah, I th- I think I was looking back at the. The entry list for one of the very early
3: Goodwood Revival TT celebrations where they had I think it was five maybe even six 250 GTO Ferraris um, all real all out there that they had a couple of the real Daytona Cobras you know one, one of the, two of the six and you don't see many of those anymore And and I'm i'm not clear whether it's cause or effect that if you've got a 250 gto if you've got a daytona cobra then because of that collector car market those are worth gazillions of pounds or dollars um and you can't you can't afford to risk as jim said that you can't afford to take that out on track um, on the basis that you're going to blow it up, and that there's there's that, um, but at the same time, yes, it would be nice to race them. Now we all know that there are some, quite a few, supposedly original historic cars out there that aren't, um, that they are exact copies, and that the uh, the owner has got the original away in a heated sauna somewhere um being uh, being cared for and loved by uh, by people waving feather boas and, and loving it and feeding it grapes and that at the so they they build an exact replica which they can go and race um it's a difficult one and and it just sort of struck me that i walked into the concours at hampton court and they had a feature on martini sponsored Race cars. Oh. No, <laughs> <laughs>
0: did
1: the other Brabham BT.
0: Tissue to aisle two, please. B? Tissue to aisle two. <laughs> uh, did did the other
1: 1975 Brabham BT 44B? They didn't, unfortunately, no. Oh, no. I'm okay then. I'm okay. Yeah,
2: okay. <laughs> uh, how many clutches on that Brabham? Uh, just one. Come
3: <laughs> along. Um, um, yeah, but you know, the, you're looking at the the Lanciers you're looking at the 917 you're looking at, at all those kind of things and I thought yeah I wonder how many of these have recently been on a race track in anger um whether they ever will be again and is that good or bad you know and I, I don't think there's a right answer but I was just interested to uh, to hear you hear your views because I think that's that's always useful to know
0: well when you I'll harken back to – I mean, I got to enjoy here in the States hours on end of the live stream from Revival. And I, for one, wouldn't want to see the Porsche 917K that won Le Mans in 1970 driven to within an inch of its life like those cars are driven (laughs) at the Revival. Those races are real races and – I have no issue with if it's the owner of the car who then brings out a replica. But if somebody else tries to pawn the car off yeah. as as the real deal, that's that's fraud. But if if the owner of the car brings out uh, the replica and um, he lets that be raced, then I don't have much. I don't have much issue with that because it's just. Um, you know, the, the, it's cringeworthy to watch some of those cars spin, and there was there was some real damage done, and a couple of yeah. pretty big hits uh, at the revival this year. Yeah, and that uh, that E type that Alex Brandle put in the wall,
3: not not through anything he did wrong. That uh, it spun on its own coolant, but um, yeah, that was a big hit. And yeah, those those cars they bounce back. And Joe, you said before, you know that. It's it's not right to put them in a museum because they were built to be raced and that's what they're what they're there for uh, and I absolutely was, agree with that.
1: It it was um it was Peter Hardman having having watched him lap after lap coming out of the Donington chicane and just putting the right Andrea wheel in the dirt in the Aston Martin DB1 that won Le Mans in 1959, and the car was just literally priceless. And in the post race interview, I said to him. Um, how how can you do that? How can you do that with a in that car just absolutely on the the edge, you know, very very close to spinning, just a, an extra inch or two into the dirt, the car would have been swapping ends. How can you how can you do that? The responsibility of that is immense. And he said, and those words, and I've, I've probably said this exact these these exact words of this story on one of our previous podcasts. But he said it would be offensive for me not to drive that car in the way that it was. Uh, for the people who designed it and the people who built it uh, not to drive it in the way that it was intended. That's why they designed and built it that way. And it was like, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And he, he went on to say that it, if it's a race car. If we crash it, we repair it. And if, yeah. you know, whatever it takes to repair it, we repair it. It's a race car. It's a, and Trigger's broom comes into mind, doesn't that's, it? That's, so, that's very
0: valid. That, that's a very valid point. It's, you know, race cars get bent, they fix them.
3: But yeah. but I think with particularly with GT cars and sports cars where individual cars have an individual history, and you know it really struck me being at Goodwood that, along with a lot of other people, I know the registration numbers of an awful lot of fifties <laughs> and sixties races. Oh yeah, I remember that. Uh, but those are individual cars, and you can stand there and you can say. Yeah, this is the car that Peter Lumsden and Peter Sargent had built by Jaguar to take to Le Mans, da, 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 But I think there's, there's also now um, an acceptance that with single-seaters, particularly historic Formula 1s, that you can go out and build a car, and that providing it passes um, the FIA um, technical passport bit, you know, there, there's a guy who's built a Tyrrell P thirty uh, four six wheeler. Now, there is no question; he's not making a secret of the fact that it's a brand new car. Um, but it's a Tyrrell P thirty four. But is it? Who knows? You know, it's. I don't. I don't know where. I don't know what I think about that.
1: It it is a Tyrrell P thirty four, I suppose. It's not a Tyrrell P thirty four that raced in the nineteen seventy six or seventy seven World Championship but it's still a Tyrrell P34. It was built from the uh, drawings of Derek Gardner, who created the car in 1975. It's just not a Tyrrell P34 that competed in those two respective world championships.
3: Yeah, good mm. point. Mm-hmm. Good point. And, and I think if, if I were to see, if my option is to see a grid of 12 cars, which are all original, or 25 cars, some of which are not, then
2: I'd rather see 25. Um, the thing is, though, Paul, would you want to know what you were seeing? Yes. I'm thinking back to, in, I think it was in the 1960s, I'm desperately trying to remember the gentleman's name, but there was a continuation run of Maserati 250Fs built. I think Cameron been, Miller. Thank you very much, 10 or 11 maybe of them. I've never, ever been to a race meeting when someone has said, this is a Miller 250F. You know, I'm, the, I'm assuming you know, that every 250F I'm looking at is a car from the 1950s. I think in in that
3: particular case, um, if you're if you're close to it, they will say it's a Maserati 250F CM10 um, because they have a CM chassis number. Um, and so I I don't think any of those to the people who know are pretending to be anything else, but yeah, I think isn't, for any of us, it would be.
1: Isn't that called provenance? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. It basically comes down to provenance, whether the car has done six Grand Prix or one Grand Prix or no Grand Prix at the wheel, you know, with Fangio or Hawthorne or whoever. It just so happens that I own a car and it's the same as the Tyrrell P34. It's still a Maserati 250F. It just, it was built a little later and it has no provenance. It hasn't got the same provenance as the you know, the, the car that won at Rouen with Frangio at the wheel kind of thing.
3: Yeah, and, and certainly I suppose this comes full circle back to the whole Concorde thing, which is that if you turn up with a Maserati 250F to Pebble Beach um, or to Amelia and that it's it's done 15 years racing because it was built at the turn of the century and that it's looks like a 250F, that is not going to be as welcome, let's say, as Fangio's two hundred and fifty F, the red one with the yellow stripe across the nose. That that's that's a whole different ball game, isn't it?
1: But I, I I think the the reason why it wouldn't be as welcome is because this it comes down to space and room on the grid. And I think if we you know if we've got room for thirty six cars and all we've got is entries of twenty, say, so we've got room for sixteen. Why why not? Mm. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't. It's an example of that model of car, and I would like to think that we would still accommodate that car to 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 for people to see an example of that Grand Prix car that raced in that period, albeit not one with much provenance. You, you know, I would still like to see it. However, yeah. if I've, if I've got a choice of the car that Fangio took to a victory, or a car that Fangio didn't take to a victory, then if we've got a choice. I'll have the Fangio car, please. <laughs> if the Fangio car is not going to appear, then I'll still like a two hundred and fifty F. So, yeah, bring that one. I'll tell and you think, something that's, that's funny about that's that. How, how things—that's how things brought. That's how historic festivals are created. Isn't it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the one of the things is that when they first started the Goodwood Revival, they in some in some races they would allow cars like the Cameron Miller 250F or whatever, and that in the, in the pit boxes, in the paddock, um, it would say 1954 type Maserati 250F for that car. And then the real car that was next to it would say 1955 Maserati 250F. So that if you knew... You knew which ones were the real ones and which ones weren't. Because mm-hmm. if it said type, it, it was mm. it was telling it wasn't. They don't do that anymore, uh, which is ah. interesting. Um, mm. Now you know, th- that the Duke of Richmond and Gordon has has very clearly put a marker down that says he is not going to have replicas in the in the TT celebration or in the Stony Moss Trophy, um, be- and absolutely understand why. Um, Lister Jaguars. There's an awful lot of Lister of Jaguars that have never been near Listers in Cambridge, which are still about. <laughs> um, and you know, there's and and then when you get down to the the saloon car races, that so as we've said before, you know, that you've got Grant Williams there um, with his Mark One Jaguar, which has been was driven in period by Roy Salvadori and Graham Hill and, and everybody else, and then. Next to him on the grid, you've got an Austin A40 that was a shopping car until a year ago um, and is built as a racing car. That's just the way it is. That's um, nothing more than that. But it's uh, it's, it's just interesting to, to think about.
0: The Historic Racing
2: News Radio Show.
3: On the first Wednesday of each month... We all get together to rant and rave about our opinions on a specific motorsport subject. And in the past, we've looked at varied subjects such as the best Formula One liveries, innovative cars, greatest circuits, the cars with the greatest number of clutches. And...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't that one, surely. Oh, you wouldn't. Hands that one. down. Well, oh, Gordon yeah. Murray wouldn't that one. <laughs> Move along. Gordon Murray wouldn't that one.
3: Um, this month, we're talking about the great rivalries, and each panelist is going to nominate three great rivalries. And at the end of it all, it falls to me to uh, to make a decision on this month's winner. And that's always a difficult one. The first cab off the ranked this month is Joe Bradley. Oh, really? I think, oh, really? Am I first? Yeah, you've got to go first. And oh, I right, think okay. I you're think always first are,
0: in my eyes, Joe.
3: <laughs> is there
0: me. is there a time limit?
3: I hope not. Yeah, me too. Jeez, I hope
0: yeah, yeah.
3: It's, um, it's getting dark here in England.
1: <laughs> it's starting to get dark here. What are you talking <laughs> about? It will be one by the time I'm finished, Jim. Sit back. Come, Come on then, there, Joe. Start go. us. What's your first nomination? Right. For my first nomination comes nowhere near Jim's three-year criteria of becoming a really major rivalry. It was a major rivalry. I'm going to explain why and the legacy that the rivalry left. And it's the rivalry that manifested in the 1982 Formula One World Championship between Gilles Villeneuve and Didier Peroni. Now, uh, firstly, uh, by the way, did, does anyone know what Gilles Villeneuve's full name is? Oh, no. Go ahead. Well, you... I'm, I, I've, I've always known this, and I've just it never... I, I've, I, I'm, I can't believe I've never mentioned it and rubbed it in. His first name was Joseph. Fine name. Fine bloke's name, isn't it? <laughs> oh, Joe. Why was, Joe, Joe Villeneuve, Villeneuve just doesn't have the same ring, though. So his, his full name is Joseph Gilles Henri Villeneuve, right? I just wanted to say that. Um, so in 1982, he's driving a Ferrari. He's like a son to Enzo Ferrari. Enzo loves his spirit, and he really had that... Dogged spirit of just never giving up. He was all about in the moment. He was all about winning the race. And arguably that was perhaps the reason why by the time of his death in 1982, which we're going to look at a little bit closer, he hadn't won a championship. Um, He potentially could have won the 1979 championship, but he was number two to Jodie Schechter and he sat behind as he should have at the uh, Monza Grand Prix and the Italian Grand Prix and Schechter took the the championship if he'd overtaken Schechter, Villeneuve would have been world champion but that wasn't what his job was to do for Ferrari so he was a he was a he was an he was already an icon whilst at Ferrari in 82 he was joined by Didier Peroni. now Peroni wasn't a newcomer to formula 1 at that time he'd re- he'd driven for Tyrrell in 78 he'd driven for Tyrrell in 79 he won his first Grand Prix in 1980 um, with uh, Ligier. He won at the Belgian uh, the Belgian Grand Prix. Um, and then in 1981, he moved to uh, Ferrari. 82, along comes the 126 C2 Ferrari, one of the prettiest looking Formula One cars still, I think, to this day. And it was in the era of full ground effects So, um, there was times where cars wouldn't run front wings and they'd just have this little snub nose because all of the downforce was from underneath the car um, brought about by ground effect. So the season kicked off in 1982 and it was a strange season. It started with a driver's strike and the um, the championship got underway in, in a very strange uh a strange process with drivers going on strike in South Africa uh, finally got underway. And it was clear to see that the Ferrari 126 C2 was becoming perhaps the car to have. And inter-team rivalry was always going to come into play. Now, at the 1982 uh, San Marino Grand Prix, it was um, 25th of April. The Formula One uh, circus converges on Imola in Italy and the politics of Formula One are continuing. Um, Having had that dispute over super licenses and the like at the start of the season, there's still this two factions that are vying for power in Formula One, which culminated in um, the Garagistes or Garagistas, as Enzo Ferrari called them, uh, Brabham, McLaren, Williams and Lotus, um, not turning up, and part uh, uh, they, they were Foca aligned. It was the FISA aligned. So Formula One Fokker was the teams, FISA was the governing body, and there was a there was a kind of a breakaway beginning to develop. So the fokker aligned teams of Brabham, McLaren, Williams, and Lotus didn't attend the race. However, Foca teams Tyrrell, Osella, ATS, and Tallman did. The manufacturer teams Ferrari, Renault, and Alfa Romeo. They were aligned to face it. They did so. It was a bit of a, a bit of a small grid that took to the race. The Reynolds were quickest. The Reynolds went off into the race. They soon fell out. No, no, nothing out of character there for the attrition of those Renault turbos were was atrocious, which left the two Ferraris in the lead. And there is various um, opinions on what actually went on in this race with regards to how the Ferraris conducted themselves. So um, the Villeneuve camp will say that Ferrari gave an instruction to, once the Renaults had fallen out, was to slow the pace, control the race, and um, maintain position. The Peroni camp feel that that wasn't quite the case. And so what we had was Villeneuve and Peroni Going at it, hammer and tongs. Villeneuve thinking in his head that Peroni was maybe rather than just falling in behind him, like he did so disciplined uh with Schechter back in seventy-nine, Peroni was overtaking Villeneuve, coming out of his slipstream, and getting past. And Villeneuve's thinking, Peroni's putting on a show for the for the crowd. He's not just going to make this a boring Uh, race to the finish. So Villeneuve overtook him, Peroni overtook Villeneuve, and this went on for lap after lap after lap until the very last lap where Peroni overtook Villeneuve going into Torsa, and Villeneuve all the way around that final lap was thinking, well, come on then, come on then, give me the lead back. Peroni didn't. Peroni went on, took the win, and it was much to the chagrin of Villeneuve, And if you've ever seen pictures of that podium of the San Marino Grand Prix in 1982, you can see that Villeneuve's body language is very, he just doesn't want anything to, to do with Peroni. And he was uh, quoted as saying, I'll never speak to Peroni again in my life. Well, what happened at the next round, this, those words proved to be quite prophetic. Um, the next round was in Belgium at Zolder. Um not very glamorous uh, location, Zolder. but in qualifying Peroni um, in the same car as Villeneuve remember, so there's nothing more there's, there's nothing more like a, a rivalry than between two teammates, two drivers in exactly the same car. Peroni went out, he went a tenth quicker than Villeneuve, and Villeneuve uh, puts the gloves back on, goes out now again there's two there's two opinions of what happened next: some say that Villeneuve was. Um, totally driven by needing to go that 10th quicker on that Peroni lap time. Others say, and of those others, Mauro Fuggieri, of, um, who was the designer of the car for Ferrari, says that Villeneuve was on an in-lap. We'll never know, because around that lap, we all know Shield Villeneuve went over the back of yacht and march and he was basically killed, Um you know, you could argue, was Villeneuve driven by that will to uh, absolutely, you know, put Peroni um, in his place? We'll never know. The fact is that that rivalry drove Gilles Villeneuve to take those risks on those qualifying tyres, which culminated in him, you know, misjudging the gap and basically losing his life. And, I mean, what's, what what greater rivalry can you have than you were willing to take it to that extent. The legacy they've left, Gilles Villeneuve, the Montreal circuit in Canada was renamed the circuit de Gilles Villeneuve. Um, His son, Jacques Villeneuve, what a legacy that was, 1997 uh, Formula One world champion, Indy 500 winner in 1995 before he even came to Formula One. Peroni went on to have a huge accident in 82 at Hockenheim, He uh, damaged his legs to an extent where he couldn't drive in Formula One again. He took up a quieter life in powerboat racing, (laughs) where he subsequently lost his life, I think, about three or four years later. And shortly after Peroni's death, uh, Peroni's girlfriend, Catherine Gu, she gave birth to twin boys. And would you believe those boys are called Didier and Gilles? Did you guys know that?
0: No, I didn't. It's a little yeah. creepy to be honest with you well, it,
1: It's um, <laughs> yeah. It gets better <laughs> Oh good Gilles, In 2020, Gilles Peroni Lifted the Constructors Trophy on the podium Of the British Grand Prix at Silverstone As an engineer for Mercedes F1 No Yeah, how fantastic is that Wow Our good friend Andrew Marriott A few years ago now was telling me and he probably still is he's working on a documentary about that rivalry so i want to put that forward as my first option for you mr tarsi wow um yeah. my second uh, greatest rivalry is the great etan centa you guys know how much of an etan center fan i am really you, you, yeah yeah i'm an and center fan <laughs> and the reason i'm an and center fan Stems all the way back from karting because in the mid to late 70s is when I first, hey, what are these kart things? Um, that's when I first got interested in, in, um, in, in motorsport, well, well, in karting, I should say. And the near Merton Senna was prolific at world championship level. His main rival in the late 70s in the world karting championships was a British guy called Terry Fullerton. Who went on to become a cart manufacturer and he still is still involved in the sport in many ways. And in fact, Ayrton Senna was uh, there's a piece on that on the Senna documentary um, where Senna is asked who his greatest rivalry was. And when you think of all the rivalries that Senna had in his Formula One career, he, he said his greatest rival was Terry Fullerton. In the 1978, the 1979, and the 1980 World Karting Championships. Now, Terry Fullerton was the World Karting Champ in 1973. They were teammates for a kart manufacturer, a kart and engine manufacturer called DAP. And it was an Italian company. And uh, Fullerton was, I mean, Fullerton was so good. He, in 1980, he took uh, what was a prestigious Champions Cup at the Yeslo circuit near Venice in Italy. Um, he overtook Senna on the very last lap to win that coveted Champions Cup. And it was this kind of thing that made Ayrton Senna think that it was at this period, I should say, that Ayrton Senna looks back and thinks, that was my greatest rivalry in motorsport. Angelo Perella if you if you know anything about karting, you'll know the name Perilla. He, he's a, a you know engine manufacturer. Uh, I had a Perilla engine. Everybody who's done karting's had Perilla engines. Stated that he, they, they were the best he's ever seen. Uh, Terry Fullerton, airtime British champ, and the thing is, the thing that Senna quantifies his choice of Terry Fullerton is down to, and these are Senna's words, the purity of the racing the lack of politics, the lack of off-track antics that went on throughout his career, it came down to the purity of the driving and the racing between himself and Terry Fullerton. Um, it's a little bit different when you think of head and Senna, the last person you think who Senna's greatest rival going to be. You would never think it was somebody from his karting days, but it was, it was Terry Fullerton. That's my second choice, Paul. Wow, that's um, that's an interesting one. And um, yeah, I thought so. Great story. And what uh, what number three? Number three, it's another Senna story, and it's not even a Formula One story. I saw Ayrton Senna race cars. I saw him come to Great Britain in 1981, where he raced Formula Ford 1600. Um. At the end of 1981, I don't know if you guys know this, but he went back to Brazil and he packed in racing. Um, And there's there's two edges to this story of why he decided to pack in and not continue. He did continue. He reappeared in British and European Formula Four 2000 for the 1982 championship. Now, the, the ladder to Formula One back in those days was Formula Ford 1600, Formula 3 if you were good enough and Ayrton Senna was certainly good enough because he won the British Formula 4 Championship in, in 81. So why didn't he go to Formula 3 in 82? That was because a bloke called Tommy Byrne was at the top of his game in Formula 3 and so Ayrton Senna took a different route to avoid coming face-to-face with Tommy Byrne. That's how savvy he was even at that stage of his career. He moved in, he finally moved into uh, the British formula three championship, which was the formula three championship to make your name in and move on to formula one. He finally made that move in 1983 where he came up against, and this is the rivalry, our good friend, Martin Brundle, the only man who could take a duet and center in the 1983 British formula three championship. Brundle was in his second year of formula three. He'd done the 82 season with David Price. Um, He lost that drive through uh, losing sponsorship, I believe. Um, But then, and this is a quote, scratched a deal with Eddie Jordan. I don't (laughs) know what that means. (laughs) It's (laughs) perhaps good that we don't know. Um, Previous to him appearing in 83, I forgot a little bit. Senna made his Formula 3 debut at the final round of the 82 Formula 3 championship at Thruxton. And it was a round that Tommy Byrne didn't enter because he didn't have to because he'd already clinched the championship. So Senna came along, did the final round of the uh, 1982 championship and absolutely walked away with the race win. So we knew that going into 83, that Senna was going to be a name to watch as he had been in Formula Ford 1600, in Formula Ford 2000. And now here he was in Formula 3 and he was racing with West Surrey Racing. And Dick Bennett knew how to put a Formula Three car together. The championship was as kind; of, it was competitive, but the first nine rounds were won by Senna, with Martin Brundle coming second. And it was just Brundle just couldn't find anything—an edge to get past him. And the the gaps at, at the finish of these races were like a second, two seconds, under a second. It was so tight, but he just couldn't find what he needed to find. The turnaround came at the 10th round, which was also a round, a combined round, of the European Formula 3 Championship and the British. And you could only score points for one of those championships, so it was kind of two championship races in the one race. Um, the deciding factor as to where you would score points came down to tyre choice. If you use the Avon tyre it was for the British Championship. The stickier Yokohama tyre was for the European. Both Senna Senna for West Surrey and Brundle for Eddie Jordan decided that they weren't prepared to trundle around in the midfield behind the sort of mediocre Yokohama European runners, so they they went for the Yokohamas as well. So they all went out in European-spec Formula 3 cars. And guess what? Brundle absolutely blitzed it. Brundle took Paul and he took the win. And it was that, that perhaps, you know how we talk about race car drivers, uh, it's all about psychology. Well, this is a great example of where the psychology came in. And maybe, you know what, maybe we can tie Martin Brundle down uh, to a podcast, Paul, and uh, and have a chat about what that psychology that went on, because it completely changed the complexion. Uh, We had Senna going off, chasing him down. Um he Brundle went off and won the next round at Donington Park, which was a round of the British Championship. Uh, the next round at Snetterton Again, we saw Senna spin off trying to make a move on Brundle. It all came to a head at Cadwell Park, um, which was the um which was round eleven. And at Cadwell Park, we saw Senna making a an, a ridiculous move. You can see it on YouTube. Have a look at it on YouTube. Just just put in Senna and Brundle at Cadwell Park, and you'll see it. Um, with Senna's car making a stupid move down the inside of Brundle into Foster's, which was the short circuit at Ulton, and ended up on top of Brundle's car. Very similar to the way how ha- uh, um, Verstappen's car ended up on the top of Hamilton's. Very, very similar the way that the cars ended up. Well, let you me believe- just interrupt you there because
3: um, you say about the uh, the video of that we have got that on our Facebook page. From about two weeks ago. So oh, we were, really?
1: Yep, Are you reading so, my mind? Yeah, I was. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Alton, it's
3: Alton Park, not Cadwell Park, by the way.
1: Oh, yes, sorry, sorry. so it was. Where did I get Cadwell? You know what? I was looking at Cadwell uh, that i have written down. It was Alton Park, of course. I did say Alton Park, Foster's. I'll get, get excited when I talk about this. Stuff. Um, <laughs> have a guess who won the race, though, with those two going out. Jim Go Roller. Ahead. Calvin Fish. Calvin Fish, absolutely. Ooh. Our good mate, Calvin Fish, who now works for American Motorsport TV.
0: That's why when um, you said they, that Brendel was the only man to beat Sen, I was going to, ah, 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 ah. ah. Why was I was coming more. to it, mate.
1: I was coming to it. Yeah, Calvin Fish. And, Davy Jones
0: uh, was in that series as well, another American. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah. Davy Jones actually had a – Davy Jones had a few fastest laps mm-hmm. and even uh, a pole position. At the at Silverstone. Yep. at Silverstone, yes. Yep. Um, it all came down to the final round, where would you believe going into the final round, Martin Brundle had a one-point lead on Senna. However, again, the psychology came into play going into that final round, and the race was absolutely dominated. Senna on pole, led from start to finish, and you mentioned him, uh, Jim. David Jones was second. And Martin Brundle was third and Senna took the championship. And it was, you know, one of those seasons of ultra competitive motorsport where we look back and that was a a brilliant example. And I remember having a conversation with Alex Brundle and I don't know where we were. It was possibly Le Mans, where I said, you know, um, how's your dad? Oh, you know, and he's kind of taking the pee a bit. And he said, uh, oh, yeah, getting older. Getting older and grumpier, and I said, "Hey, mate!" He was the only bloke who took it away at and center back in the day. And Alex gave me that look, as if to say, "Okay, mate, you've got me." Yeah, yeah. He's still, he's still a legend, isn't he? You know.
0: Yes, and he's mentioned it once or twice. I was going to say he probably rolled his eyes, going, "Oh, here we go again."
3: <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Thank you, Joe. That's uh, that's good stuff. So we've got Villeneuve and Peroni. Senna and Terry Fullerton, and Senna and Brundle. So some good stuff there. Um, Jim Rowley, you've seen quite a few big rivalries over the years. Who's your
0: first? Well, I'm going to start decidedly American. We'll come back to Ayrton Senna in a moment. Um, but I'm going to start with A.J. Foyt and Mario Andretti. Right. Yes. Now, these two guys are linked mainly by, to most fans, by the Indianapolis 500. But their paths continued to cross throughout their racing career. And while on the face of it, it, it's interesting that a lot of people, when the movie came out about Lauda and Hunt, that their rivalry was... It was really more friendly than Hollywood wanted it to to be and and Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, with Foyt and Andretti, on the face of it, the rivalry seemed fairly friendly. Behind closed doors, these two wouldn't pee on each other if they were on fire. (laughs) They don't like each other. They don't like, and 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 a lot of it came to a head uh, during the USAC cart split because A.J. was definitely in the uh, Tony George IRL Indianapolis 500 camp and Mario was strongly in the cart camp. And that was when the, the 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 schism truly, truly came to a head. A.J. Foyt won the Indianapolis 500 four times. Mario only was able to win it once, despite... You know, he started. He only finished the race five times in twenty-nine tries, and AJ has always lauded that fact over Mario. Now, Mario won a world championship; AJ Foyt didn't. The two of them, though, have some striking similarities, and that's part of what makes this rivalry. And it's a you talk about three years. This is a lifetime. Rivalry, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, they both share one silver crown title, which was the the dirt uh, big sprint cars that that they had. Um, they both raced USAC stock cars. Uh, AJ Foyt winning three times, Mario never winning. They both uh, raced NASCAR. Uh, I think Mario had two or three wins. Uh, AJ had seven. They both shared. Wins at the Daytona 500. Um, They both have IROC championships. AJ has two. Mario has one. In each of the categories, AJ kind of outdoes Mario. AJ had 138 USAC wins. Mario had 60. AJ led the most Indy 500s. The most famous words at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway are... The four most famous words. Who knows the answer to this question?
3: I think I do, but go on trouble
0: for Mario Andretti. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> AJ Foyt still holds the record for the most consecutive starts in the 535. As I said uh, a moment ago, uh, Mario only had 29 starts. <laughs> only, only. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the big thing, they both won the 24 Hours of Daytona. They both won Sebring. The thing that AJ did that Mario was never able to do was win the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And that bothers Mario to this day. That that's the one thing that AJ has, even though that. Mario won the world championship. AJ never competed for the world championship. The 24 hours of Le Mans is the only thing that the two of them competed in that Andretti cannot claim uh, victory. That's a, that's a major race event. Mm -hmm. Mario was elected uh, driver of the century. You know, he has many things, but he does not have a 24 hour Le Mans victory. And that really really bothers them. one thing Mario does have that a j doesn't have Mario is still fairly active a j is in his eighties and his health is has started to wane a bit he's he's become a fixture as a as a car owner now but Mario andretti yeah he's he gets a lot of publicity for being the the driver of the the Honda give you a ride around the racetrack car that, that precedes every uh, Indy car race. But Mario is still responsible for helping car setups and Mario in test sessions set up the car that won this year's Indy 500. Really? Yes. That's pretty cool. And uh, how old would he be? Uh, Ooh. You're going to stump me with that one.
3: Um, he, he must be over 70.
0: Oh, w- w- yes. Yes.
3: That's a lot of talent, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So that is... And there are people who are... You were either of... And, and and there's no... there. People will tell you, yes, AJ Foyt was great, but Mario was the greatest. Or people will say Mario was great, but AJ was the greatest. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. there's no... You're either a Foyt guy or you're an Andretti guy. And that's 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 the way it is. So that is probably the greatest American racing rivalry ever. And it spanned the pantheon of the sport, which I think is pretty cool.
3: It certainly is. And um moving forward, if,
2: if I can just chip in for a second. Mario oh. Andretti was born twenty eighth of February nineteen
0: forty. So he's 81. 81, yes. So at 81 years of age. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Wow. He's out there setting up wow. an Indy 500 winner.
1: That is yep. sheer madness, but very, very impressive. He still drives the two-seater on the pre on the Yeah, pre- that's list. what I say.
0: Everybody, everybody, uh, everybody knows him for that. But, in fact, he goes to test sessions and still gets behind the wheel. Incredible. Yep.
3: That's amazing.
0: Yeah. Um, my second... second. My second one is a bit more esoteric and very much American. And that is Steve Kinzer and Sammy Swindell, two of the greatest names in American outlaw sprint car racing. Uh, Outlaw sprint cars are denoted by their big wing that you see. And these two are probably, well, Swindell has now been eclipsed by a young man by the name of Donnie Schatz. But, The rivalry between Swindell and Kinzer was it was probably more of a rivalry for Sammy than it was for for Steve, because Steve is probably one of the most dominant racers in the history of motorsport for dominating his category in a a sport when where you can have the, the world of outlaw guys race 75 times to 100 times a year. Um, the you know to, to race two nights a week, uh, in a, in a World of Outlaws season is in in two different cities, is 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 de rigueur. That's that's kind of the norm. Well, during those during their careers, uh, which span for Kinzer, he started World of Outlaws was formed in 1978. He'd raced a bit before then, but from 1978 to 2005 he won 20 World of Outlaw titles. During that time, he won 690 feature events. Now, in any given night, you may race four or five times. The, the last race, the big feature race, is the one that counts for the points. Um, he, from 1978 to 2014, which was when he finally retired from full-time World of Outlaw racing, He was out of the top three points in the, in the season championship only seven times. And he was out of the top five, only three times. The man who was constantly chasing him was Swindell and Swindell is a guy who, you know, Steve Kinzer was the typical American kind of larger than life. He was a, he was a wrestler in high school. He was a big, tough guy, um, he wasn't a he wasn't a little man by any stretch of the imagination, six well above six feet and big burly guy looked more like a football player than a race car driver, American football player. Um, Sammy Swindell was more of what you would expect. He was he was a piece of leather though. He was hard as nails as well. He won three World of Outlaw titles and 394 features. He won the Chili Bowl five times. Now the Chili Bowl is a unique event in that is that in January, it is an indoor midget race that is uh, not to be missed. It it should be on everybody's bucket list to go to at least one time. But uh, Swindell won three titles, the last of which was 1997. Then he tried to go NASCAR and IndyCar racing with little success Kinzer did the same thing. He tried Indy once. He made the field, but didn't finish. And he tried a full season of, of NASCAR racing, but unfortunately he got with the wrong team. And it was a team that the the crew chief wanted to have nothing to do with some Midwestern sprint car driver. And so that was ill-fated from the first day and Steve never got a fair shake there. He went back to the sprint cars and, He actually took a pay cut to go race NASCAR. So that kind of tells you (laughs) what it's like for these guys when they, when they race that much. Um, Of course, he's not making Dale Earnhardt kind of money. uh, But back then Dale Earnhardt was making all of his money from t-shirts and memorabilia. So um, it was, it was a bit of a pay cut to go race. So that's the, that's my second one. These two guys raced against each other all the time. They uh, in in uh, Kinzer was the dominant force, and it was a great day for Swindell when he was able to to beat Steve. And uh, another place where they where they met part of sprint car racing besides the regular season, there are specialty events: the Knoxville Nationals, uh, the Kings Royal. These are events that uh, many of them are invitation events, and. They are big money winners. Uh, the winner of the Kings Royal, the winner takes home $100,000. The winner of Knoxville now takes home more than that. Steve won that 12 times. Sammy won it once. Steve won the Kings Royal eight times. Sammy won it three times. So they were uh, and always against each other. They, they, they pretty much raced. Uh, Sammy raced a little bit longer than, than Steve did. He still, uh, until about a year ago, would occasionally show up at a sprint car, especially the Nationals or the Kings Royal or something like that. He'd show up at the, at the special events. But it just wasn't the same without having to race against Steve Kinzer.
3: Interesting. And, um, and your third? My third one,
0: I think, is probably the hands-down winner. And it involves that guy again that Joe mm-hmm. loves so much. Mm. Ayrton Senna. Now, I find it interesting, Joe, that you said that Senna uh, and his um, love the purity of, of the racing. That mm. I just find it so strange that a guy that remembers the purity of the racing was so famous for crashing into people to win championships. That's not really pure racing. And it's one of the things that, frankly, for me, I lost a lot of respect for Senna uh, as a as a sportsman, not for his ability, man, the, you know, I would, uh, with Joe, I would put him up there as probably we were talking earlier about the pure raw talent of a, of a Hamilton or a Verstappen. There's probably in pure raw talent, you're going to be hard, hard pressed to point to anybody that would be better than Ayrton Senna. Mm. But I think his biggest rivalry, and especially for one lap, if I, if my life mm. depended on a Formula One driver going out and doing one lap, I'd put my life in the hands of Ayrton Senna. So I guess from that standpoint, I do have a lot of respect for Senna. I just think that he showed his ass a bit in, the, in his battle with Alain Prost. Now, the two of them started to have their battle in the 88 season when they both were at McLaren, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of speculation at the beginning of the year who would who would who would win the championship. Um, Senna prevailed, but at the end of the season, Prost started to make noise. Senna defeated Prost ninety points to eighty seven points. Now this was back when in, in Formula One you didn't have to count all the races. So in raw points, Prost actually scored more points than Senna. He had one hundred and five points to ninety four for Senna. But Senna, uh, due to the way the regulations were written, uh, won the championship ninety to eighty seven because you could you could drop uh, you could drop races. At the end of the season, Prost started to make noise that Honda was favoring. This was the the first year of the of the Honda McLaren deal. And he felt that his team, his group in the garage area was not getting all the best stuff. Uh, Nobuhiku Kawamoto, who was then the head of Honda's R and D after the season confirmed that the crew engineers the japanese engineers actually did like senna better because of his adri- aggressive driving style and admitted that perhaps because of their relationship with senna at lotus in 1987 perhaps prost wasn't exactly off base in in what he was was claiming that senna might have gotten some better equipment from time to time wow so that set up 1989. And in 1989, Senate was kind of win it or bin it. He uh, came out of the box, won, finished 12th in the first race, then won the next three, retired, seventh, two more retirements, another victory, a second place, a victory, two more retirements, and a victory in Spain. Prost, three second place finishes a fifth, a victory, a retirement, two more victories and a second-place finish, a fourth, a second, a first, a second, and a third in Spain. So that set it up that Prost and Senna were the two title protagonists. They had basically, the team had won every race, with the exception of Italy. And... Senna had to win the last two races of the season. So Senna was on the pole in in Japan. He was beat off the line by Prost, and Prost had kind of gone off into the distance. And Senna came in and changed his tires. And that really changed the face of the race because he was able on the set of tires to climb through the field. And on lap 46, as they were coming to turn one, the two of them arrived at the corner at the exact same time, and it depends on who you talk to. Um, Prost either turned down on Senna, or Senna didn't turn in for the corner as he as he would have, and the two of them crashed out. Prost walked away from his car. Senna was pushed by the by the stewards, but was later disqualified. And that caused even more problems (laughs) down the road, as uh, was documented in the Senna uh, biographical film, that Balestra and the FIA was favoring Prost. Prost went on to claim the title 76 points to 60 points. And as both cars retired in Australia... Senna uh, quit the team, then came back. He, he you know, basically threw his toys out the pram, uh, and um, the the relationship seriously was dead. So Prost moved on to Ferrari. Senna stayed with the Honda Powered McLaren, and the championship came down to guess where again? Suzuka. Uh, Prost had had mounted a significant uh, title challenge. He'd claimed three straight. He won in Mexico. He won in France, and he won the British Grand Prix. And that meant the championship had co- come down for the third consecutive year to these two guys. So next to the race last next to the last race of the year is back at Suzuka, and back then there was and and. Joe, you can probably correct me on this. I think it still is that the 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 pole sitter starts on the inside no matter whether that's the that, that that's a rule still, correct? That the pole sitter starts on on the inside.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. yeah.
0: yeah. Senna yeah. back then, despite securing the pole, was distressed and complaining that the inside line was going to be dirty and that would give the second fastest qualifier. Three guesses who that was. <laughs> <laughs> the The whole shot going into turn one. Well, Balestra and the FIA turned a deaf ear to Senna's pleas. Uh, Senna was incensed. He vowed that he would be the first car into turn one. So, at the when the lights went out, they came down into turn one. Senna dove under Prost to. Trying to get the inside from the Ferrari, the two of them crashed out again, taking both drivers out of the gra- down into the gravel, and Senna was crowned champion. So the that really was the incident that for me, I thought Senna was way out of line in that one. I think the first incident in Suzuka that was, you know that that was hard aggressive racing on Senna's part. I think it was maybe a little too hard and aggressive but you but, know it, it, can, in in re- in reality Prost did turn into him and Senna was alongside of him. So Senna yeah. had basically won that corner in in my mind. Now, was he going was he under control and could he have made the corner? Well, that that's another that's another point of contention, but but Prost was the one who turned right and turned right into Senna. Yeah. But I, the Can following I, season, I'll let you in in a minute. I know, <laughs> the, I'll, I'll, the, the following season, it was all Senna, and he just flat yeah. took out Prost.
1: But the Good reason year. the reason he took out Prost and was determined to take out Prost all stems back to the previous year at Suzuka. So oh yeah.
0: Yeah, if, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Oh One begot the other, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and the re- and the
1: reason being is as, as Prost turned in, he was he turned hard right about four cart lengths before you turn right into the apex. So he literally deliberately drove into Senna. And it was it – Well, but there are those of, that
0: would say that Senna deliberately drove into the side of Prost. I mean, you can't – uh, And that's the 89. Yeah, that's the 89. No no, yeah. no,
1: no, 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 no. There yeah. was only one driver who turned his steering wheel.
0: Well, that's true, but Senna
1: went down the inside. And and there was the no way
0: he could have made that corner.
1: He would have definitely have made the corner. They were way, <laughs> but, way off the didn't, corner. Didn't, it uh,
0: and the this end. and this and that and maybe just say this is why this is the greatest <laughs> rivalry Yes, because, because because we're still, and, because we're still, we're about still arguing about it. Yeah,
3: we are. Twenty years later twenty years Twenty now. years
0: later, I rest my case, Your Honor.
3: <laughs> we need to hear Paul's now. up. Paul, you've uh, you, you have a reputation for coming in with things that are off the wall. And um what have you got for us this month?
2: That's yeah, just putting me under pressure immediately, isn't it? <laughs> but okay, let's let's start off conventional really I think looking at the same period and I'm going for to start off with Nelson Nigel Mansell and Nelson PK. Mm, nice and uh, mm-hmm. you know, when double double world champion pk moved to williams from brabham for the 86 season it was clearly with his eyes on that third title and with the contract saying he was the number one driver but also at williams and with a season under his belt supporting keki rosberg and uh, a season that saw him take two wins was that uh, there's our man himself nigel mansell now pk's view of the situation was really re- reinforced in that season opener in rio when uh mansell crashed out on lap one and uh he went on to win his first race in Williams but then a second for mansell in Spain got the Brazilians attention and uh he tweaked his contractual muscles shall we say and for the rest of the year had a uh, first dibs on the spare car i love that phrase and then wins for mansell at spa Montreal Paul Ricard and Brands Hatch mid-season four wins in five races left, left Piquet really knowing what he was up against and uh it was really that brand's hatch that started to up the temperature a bit because the, the two fw 11s were the class of the field at the kent circuit well clear of the rest when mansell pressured pk into a mistake and went ahead each stopped for tires and mansell firmly closed the door on a pk move before easing away and uh, the mansell offer of a handshake on the podium was studiously ignored by the Brazilian. <laughs> no change there then <laughs> PK then won at Hockenheim before the F1 circus went to the Hungara Ring for the first time. It's strange is the Hungara Ring all the way back in 1986. It still seems like a new circuit. Yes, I agree. And uh, PK and his team found a differential tweak that really worked well on the layout. And uh, Mansell was convinced they'd hidden their setup change from him, something that uh, engineer Frank Derny has always denied, to give him credit. But yet again, incrementally, that temperature rose. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that Williams had always had a view that competition was good between their drivers. And it's been suggested that with Frank Williams having been injured and missing all the races up to brands, that maybe the opportunity was missed to have a quiet word and smooth out the relationship. But uh, but that never happened. And really, in the end, that cost the drivers the, you know, the titles, if not Williams, who did actually take that Constructors title. So Prost took the driver's title as PK and Mansell effectively took points off each other. And uh, if you remember, Mansell did have that dramatic Adelaide blowout in the final race. But uh, Mansell was possibly the moral victor with five wins to PK's four. But the year later, 1987, was just basically a straight fight between the two. Mansell had grown in confidence and was possibly even quicker. And PK, using his experience, deciding to race smart. You know, if he couldn't be quick, he was going to do what it took to get, keep scoring points. And uh, that approach actually was the effective one because that took him to his third title. Despite Mansell missing the the final two races of the season with injuries, so at the season's end, PK and the uh, the useful and very very powerful Honda engines left Williams. Mansell having won eleven races to PK seven, and well ahead in the qualifying stats, but it was PK who had that all important championship title. Now th- their enmity didn't stop there. PK made some needless remarks about Mansell and his family to the media heading into the nineteen eighty seven season. Classy as ever. And, uh, well, Mansell's response, well, the season opened at the newly renamed Autodromo Nelson Piquet in Rio. And uh, he put his normally aspirated Williams on the front row, having qualified 1.5 seconds quicker than Piquet's turbocharged Lotus. But their paths crossed again. And uh, in a wonderful moment of irony, it was Piquet who benefited from Mansell's laps on the last lap of the 1991 Canadian Grand Prix when the Williams ground to a halt on the circuit when leading. Well, either due to Mansell stalling, having forgotten to down change for a chicane or switched the car off while waving to the crowd. You can pick your favorite reason. And, uh, yes. yeah, <laughs> you know, let's just say they probably never, ever parted on good terms. Although amusingly, they did do an advert for Ford Brazil many, many years later together that apparently is online if you go and track it down somewhere. But uh, all you can say is that without each other, 86 and 87 would have been Williams walkovers for one or the other. So, uh, you know, r- r- they actually, that rivalry gave us two classic seasons when we could have just been watching Williams drive off into the distance. Good stuff. Good stuff. And uh, who's your second? Right. Well, i have actually already touched on this to a degree, but we're going to go back to, uh, to, to the 1930s again. And, you know, you think of rivalries as driver against driver, and we've seen some fantastic ones already. But for a while in the 1930s, you had a rivalry that was one man against an entire nation. And it was the great Tazio Nuvolari taking on the might of those silver arrows, the auto unions and the Mercedes that were representing the might of Germany. And uh, yeah, you can apply the term David and Goliath to that if you like. But uh, I actually think there's an argument for which way round that is, because this is Nuvolari we're talking about. The flying Mantuan, winner of Grand Prix, Le Mans, Mil and to be honest, pretty much everything that actually mattered in that period. And uh, you hear an awful lot of discussions about the greatest of all time. But if whoever has nominated his favourite for that title can't tell you why they are better than Nuvolari, then their opinions are absolutely meaningless. (laughs) Thank you very much. Just had to say that. So basically, when the German challenge, and this was, you know, as I said earlier, two state-backed race teams appeared, They, they were the dominant force in European motorsport fitting the top positions in Grand Prix's time after time. And they were the ones to beat from the 1934 German Grand Prix through to the 1939 season, winning Grand Prix after Grand Prix. Amusingly, not the French Grand Prix. They always would miss that just to annoy the French. And the only fly in their Teutonic ointment was the Alfa Romeo of Nuvolari. And, you know, a constant in motorsport is the best drivers want the best cars. And Novol- Nuvolari was no exception and actually had approached Auto Union for a drive in 1935. And while the team wanted him, the existing drivers did not, probably fearing being outpaced by Nuvolari. And it was essentially hands stuck and Nuvolari's fellow Italian, Achille Vazzi, who were the strongest ejectors, Vazzi having not actually partnered Nuvolari before and having sworn never to do so again. So uh, Nuvolari actually, this is you know back in the 1930s, remember, found out he hadn't got the drive by letter. And the letter was written in French as he didn't speak or read German. And um, the... the, the Auto Union team management didn't know any Italian. And uh, that left Nuvolari looking for a drive. Now, by this time, the Alfa Romeos were being run by former racer Enzo Ferrari, as a name to remember. And uh, he was another one who'd fallen out with Nuvolari. I do accept there is a bit of a theme developing here. And it took the intervention of Benito Mussolini to get Nuvolari back into one of those red cars. (laughs) No politics there, then? None at all, none at all. And the trains were running on time, too.
0: <laughs> but, <laughs> but no rivalry is, is, is really... Max a- Mosley wasn't involved, was he? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Let's move on at this point, shall we? It's like no no rivalry is, is really an emphatic one without a good dose of revenge. And uh, Nuvolari got that at the 1935 German Grand Prix. 300,000, and that's indie standards, isn't it? Fervent German race fans were at the Nürburgring to watch their national pride and joys take yet another victory and Nuvolari was there in his Tipo B Alpha giving away 100 brake horsepower to the supercharged German cars but the day was wet and that could be a great leveller after 10 laps he was leading and then a slow pit stop dropped into sixth and uh, he came out charging hard you know maybe a forebear of the great Fangio Nuvolari Fangio Nürburgring charge around 20 years later and he was second going into the final lap 35 Seconds behind Nazi favourite and the man who's already cropped up in this podcast, Manfred Brombrowski in his Mercedes W25B. The German was also pushing hard and uh, in fact too hard as his tyres were destroyed and Nuvolari swept past to take the chequered flag to complete silence from the large crowd. (laughs) And uh, amusingly, this is this is my favourite bit. The silence continued as as so confident had the organizers been that there'd been a German victory. They didn't have a copy of the national anthem, Italian national anthem to play. But once more, Nuvolari came on top because it turns out he always carried a copy of the Marcia Reale with him just in case.
0: Was it a 78 or a 33 and a third? You you have to wonder, isn't it? That moment when he whipped it out and said, oh, by the way, I've got one. Do you have to. Do you have to play it
2: backwards. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Paul is dead. Paul is dead.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so the so reality caught up with everyone, and for yeah. 1938, Nuvolari was in an auto union, but his days in a red alpha that irritated a nation won't be forgotten. And your third, right? Well, continuing my reputation, and uh, yeah, we've explored rivalries of many kinds. I think so far on this podcast. And the classic motorsport cliche is that your biggest rival is your teammate, but that isn't really true. It's the most intense rivalries. And even going outside of motorsport back through the works of Shakespeare when I think there's 21 examples of this. And even to the legend of the founding of Rome, we see that what's really true is the most intense rivalries are those from within a family, especially between brothers. (laughs) So bearing that in mind, and also remembering the brief for this was single-seaters. So uh, you might think I'm stretching the boundaries a bit to include land speed record cars. Anyone want to name a two-seater one, though? <laughs> True. But a great rivalry there, a great sibling rivalry there, was between Walt and Art Arfons from Akron in Ohio. Now, pretty obviously, they grew up together and were both mechanically minded, working on cars. They built a custom car they called the Green Monster. They built motorbikes and even built an airplane together. And uh, how they actually fell out with each other has always been a bit of a mystery, though it's uh, been suggested that the highly competitive art was the cause. And although traditionally such things are over a winsome female, with the Arfons, it could just have been likely been a missing spanner or (laughs) carburetor. So they ended up in adjacent workshops in Akron, not talking to each other, but both building cars aimed at taking the land speed record. And uh, in October 1964, it was Walt at the Bonneville Salt Flats with his jet-powered Wingfoot Express. And uh, unable to drive it himself, having suffered a heart attack, his engineer, Tom Green, took over. Can you imagine? i never driven much before, but yeah, I'll have a go. And uh, took over the driving duties. And after test runs and a new engine, did a run at 406 miles per hour, but suffered em- engine damage. As in the rules, the return had to be done within an hour. So they, they just went for it, basically. Green used the afterburner a bit more and uh, came back at 420 miles an hour. So a new land speed record of 413.32 just three days later, Art Arfons was at bonnyfield and rolled out the Green Monster. Remember that name? And again, again, jet powered, but with more than double the thrust of the Wingford Express. And it was you know, a pretty basic design that effectively just looks like a jet engine with a wheel in each corner and a cockpit and apparent afterthought along one side. And you know, one thing you can say for the brothers is they were practical engineers rather than theorists. And uh, Art had actually tried to buy a J79 jet engine and uh, found one in a junkyard. Now, General Electric, who made the engines, refused to supply him with any manuals or handbooks for it. But Art figured out how to repair it, got it working like new to the extent that General Electric came along and tried to buy it back off him. So the monster was powerful and Art was nothing if not brave. And after a <laughs> disappointing first run at just under 400 miles an hour, his return was a blazing 479 miles an hour, still only using 60% of the power of that jet. And to take the title, the Wingford Express and his brother had held for just three days, yeah. all in a car that had cost him $6,000. Six $6,000? $6,000, yeah. That puts it in perspective. It really was a junkyard special. So uh, Walt returned with a rocket-powered Wingfoot Express, but that ran out of thrust before the end of the measure mile and never broke the record. But Art was back and twice more broke the record in the Green Monster, finally raising it to 576 miles an hour, despite a tyre blowing out at the end of the run and Art's controlling the slide and a smoke-filled cockpit. Luck finally ran out for Art in 1966 when uh, trying to beat Craig Breedlove's 600-mile-an-hour mark he had a wheel-bearing go at well over that speed, the monster cartwheeling, rolling for over a mile, somehow Art just getting away with just a cut face. That did at least get the brothers talking again, but it was the end of the Wingfoot and Monster rivalry. Wow. That's, um, yeah, I've, I said you did things that were off the wall, and uh,
3: you've certainly done one there. So the ones we have to look at are Villeneuve and Pironi, Senna and Terry Fullerton, and Senna and Martin Brundle, um, all of those from Joe. Jim's Foyt and Andretti, Steve Kinser and Sammy Swindell, and Prost and Senna, and Paul's Nivolari versus the whole of Germany, Walton <laughs> Art, Alphonse, and Mansell and PK. Oh, do you know you've really put me on the spot this time, guys? Um, because I think one of the things is is to look at the difference between rivalry and enmity, and that I think there's certainly several of those where there's an enmity which adds that's a bit of spice to the mix, and it's difficult. I mean, no, nobody said Damon Hill and Michael Schumacher, and you know, nobody said that there, there, there are others that are. That are in there. I think because of the the lifelong enmity that that's that's there. I think, Mr. Rowley, you've got it again with um, Foyt and Andretti. So well done. Oh mm. my heavens!
0: That was the last Ooh. thing I expected to win. No, I think- no, that was a great one, Jim. Oh wow, that, that, okay. that was
3: eye opening. I thought, yeah. yeah, yeah, that was so. A great uh, one. Congratulations, oh, uh, but uh, but congratulations to all three of you because I think we 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 keep every single podcast we do. We say there's a whole podcast here, and I, there is a whole podcast <laughs> on every one of those nine. I, I now, enjoyed, now, Joe, I enjoyed uh, everyone's I want to
0: go <laughs> What you want to talk about, Salmon and Frost? I go back you? to that. <laughs> no, yeah, <we're> yeah. Not. <laughs> after uh, uh, over a uh,
1: over a pint. That's what well, the thing—the thing that paid him off the most was the fact that Balest had disqualified him for not oh, yeah. rejoining the track at the point that he'd
0: gone off. Which well, when it was outside that. assistance, there were like three things that they have well, no, got him it wasn't, on, it, and they it got, it got him on the, no. on, the, on the on the most bogus because right. it, Just because what? it wasn't outside there assistance there because
1: we're uh, we're running out <laughs> of time. Of course, can't we not just extend it a bit longer, Paul? No. <laughs> <laughs> like a couple of days? We'll I think Joe has here. a point to make. <laughs> no, we can do it. Oh enough. no, no. We've been Jim what? and I have been having this conversation for for over twenty years. Yes, we have. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's it for
3: the news and views edition of the historic racing news radio show um, on the twentieth of October. We'll uh, release the first part of our Group C feature, which is all about uh, Group C cars. We're going to break it into three bits, the cars, the drivers, and the races. And the first bit will be the Group C cars. So don't forget to download that wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget also that on the 3rd of November, we will be doing our News and Views piece again. And on that show... We will be talking to Rob Smedley, late of Ferrari and Williams, uh, about as much as anything his new venture into electric karting, and that Joe Bradley is going to be talking karts with Rob Smedley, and we'll also have the original Stig, Perry McCarthy, will be on the show, That's and beautiful. he'll be uh, be talking. He'll be <laughs> he'll be talking. <laughs> There's nothing more to say about that. <laughs> yeah, He'll just be
1: talking, uh, as, as he does.
3: Don't forget to follow our Facebook page. Uh, we are now reaching 1.75 million people a month on our Facebook page. So I hope you can find something of interest there. And you can also find us, of course, on historicracingnews.com. Congratulations to all of our panellists, Paul Jurd, Jim Roller, and Joe Bradley. I'm still Paul Tarsi. And I hope that you've enjoyed the show. So until next time, if you have been, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.